All right, this morning as we finish up the 12, the minor prophets, we're looking at Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And before we jump right into Haggai, I want to go back and look at the 12 for just a few minutes. And in House's book, your textbook, he talks about dividing the 12 into these three categories that they theologically, while all 12 deal with these issues, there's an extra emphasis Uh, The first six deal with sin, the next three with punishment, and the last three that we're looking at today on restoration. So uh, if that's accurate, which we're we're going with it, then what we should see is an additional focus on restoration. Uh, Not that restoration is not in the others, it is for sure, but that these books have a larger emphasis on it. They're still going to talk about sin, they're still going to talk about punishment, okay? So that's what we should expect to find today. I also want to just, uh, as a recap, and remind ourselves of the 12. So the first six, okay, that deal with the sin, all right, uh, were alternating. Okay, so Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. It was to the north, to the south, to the north, to the south, to the north, to the south, all right? And then after that, obviously, the, the north is gone. So the next six, okay, all deal with basically the south, right? And um, you can see in his chart here, the, the countries that are involved as well. Also related to the 12, <coughs> one of the things about um, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi is there seems to be an additional close relationship with those three books in particular. Um, that's Gary uh, Schitzer. He is the author of uh, the Torah story. I've mentioned that before. Excellent, excellent book. And so I have uh, a bit of material from him related to these as well. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi <coughs> looking at restoring the temple, the city, and the people. Okay? Um, you can compare that kind of to Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, and Ezra when they came back. And they were setting about to do similarly, to uh, restore the temple, uh, to, to rebuild the walls, and to rebuild the morality of the people and their uh, relationship with God. So there's some interconnections there as well. <coughs> Coming also um, from Gary Schnitzer is looking at the leaders here during this time period and the Persian king. So uh, it's very easy to forget, especially if you're in both of my classes and we are going back and forth all the time. I mean, we're doing entire empires and we're bouncing back between you know, the Mesopotamian area and um, the Egyptian area, and then we bring in Greece and Rome. I mean, it's very easy to get confused. So the Persian kings that we looked at here, Cambyses was only for a short while, um, but the rest of these are important. And then the leaders um, in Judah, okay? Sheshbazar, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And then Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are going to be our, our prophets dealing with, with this situation. There is some additional interplay related to the rule of Darius um, in this time period. You can see here with Haggai and Zechariah, both making mention, and we'll bring this up when we talk about the date of these books individually, but both of these books making specific mention of the second year of Darius' reign. So what that means is we have a, a 
very close relationship between what's going on and Haggai and Zechariah. You can see right here in Haggai, all Haggai's references are to the second year of Darius, his reign. Alright? So for now, we don't care if someone for the month and the day, but all in the year, second year. And then for Zechariah, we've got second and fourth year mentioned um, of the year of Darius. So these guys are, are ministering um, in the same time period. This chart just uh, puts them, along with a few other events, all, all together here on, on the timeline. I know that when I was uh, first in Bible college, I would get confused about when people talk about Second Temple era. Um, what you have to think through is, in the Old Testament originally, there was no temple. There was the tabernacle. All right, That was the first um, semi-permanent place for God to dwell. Prior to that, they would worship you know, on hilltops and whatever else. So the tabernacle came along, and that was a movable, movable place, portable. Um, and then the temple. So the first temple was whose? Who built Solomon. Solomon, all right? So that's the first time that there's this temple structure, all right? Now, when that's wiped out um, in what year? 586 by Babylon, okay? Teamwork. So that's wiped out in 586 by Babylon. And then when the boys from Persia come back, so you got Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, right? Um, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, etc. When they come back, Sheshbazar, they begin working on rebuilding the temple. Okay, eventually the temple is, is rebuilt. We'll talk a little bit about that today. They stop, they start, etc. Um, that is going to be the second temple period. All right. Um, afterwards, King Herod will greatly expand the temple. And so that will be the Herod's temple that is being referred to. So the second temple period is from here forward, all right, after the rebuilding. Uh, of, that's the first one we destroyed, obviously, right? So um, Jeremiah was Jerusalem when it fell. Ezekiel was a captive. Daniel was in Babylon, right? And so we just follow through a little bit of what's happening here. Um, in 586, we just talked about how the Babylonians come in and they take the, the temple, and Nebuchadnezzar is, is the ruler. And then uh, Cyrus, his decree as the leader of the Persians, and then they're the world empire. And because of that, the temple rebuilding begins and is put on hold. We'll talk about that as well. And then Esther's in here. So we got Ezra is afterwards, Ezra and Nehemiah there, and Malachi um, over here. There is some debate on the dates of um, a little bit of this. The day obviously that's going to change uh, your timeline a little bit. So um, we'll talk more about that as we get into the individual books. <coughs> so that's just a sample. All right. So with that being said, let's go into specifically the book of Haggai or Haggai. The specific timeline for him. Okay. If 538 is the, the decree from Cyrus, okay, that he allows them to go back and begin to rebuild, um, Zerubbabel in 537 has the exiles going back. They began rebuilding the temple, and the altar is rebuilt in 536. And then in 535, it stops. Haggai prophesies that the temple rebuilding is going to resume around 520. So 520 is our time period for that. 
completed in 513, five years later, okay? So 520, over here, 537. So it's been about 17 years from when they went back. So that number, it'll come up again, a 17-year number. We'll go back to start building, but how come 17 years later, it's not finished? And God has to send a prophet to kickstart them to get it going again. Okay? <coughs> That's just the same world powers chart that we put up um, each week just to get our bearings. So if we're talking about uh, 520, uh, who's the world power up there? Nope, not Babylon. Uh, nope, not Assyria. Persian Empire, all right? And <coughs> remember, a brief pause, God is ready, right? A-B-P, G-I-R. So if that helps, all right. This is just a, a little diagram related to the city out of Logos, uh, Bible software. <coughs> but the temple is back up in here. And so... Temple Mount is this large area, so when, when Herod expands the temple so dramatically, um, it makes it so large and, and glorious, if you will, um, he builds up the mountain to extend this whole big area here. So the <coughs> city of David is, is down in here, and so it's much further up there in the, the northern section of where they're going to be focused as far as their reconstruction efforts. What about the title and author? Well, this is the second shortest book in the Old Testament. Wh what's the shortest one? Mm -hmm. Obadiah, right. Okay. There is no formal title to the book, all right? Um, but the name of the book, the title comes from the prophet Haggai. Now, his name means festive or festival. So um, he led him, and there were... Malachites, it says, spread out over the entire area, eating, drinking, and celebrating. This is 1 Samuel 30, 16. Because of the great amount of plunder they had taken. Um, that's, that's the same word. Festive, festival, celebrating. Uh, that's where his, word, his name comes from. Um, some think he might have been born near, near the time of a festival. Speculation. His ministry begins on a new moon festival day. And the book records the festivities to be enjoyed when Yahweh rules in the day of the Lord. So, there are some things in the book itself related to festivals and his name. He was uh, possibly born in Babylon and part of the first return under his brother Bell, 536. Sometimes he's referred to as the successful prophet because of the fast response to his message. In contrast to people like Jeremiah that preached for 40 years and got no response. Um, this is what we want, right? I mean, every preacher, every minister, they, I mean, this is what they want. You know, you say something and the people jump, right? Yeah. Well, out of all the prophets, how, how many of them? He, he's the one that has the reputation as a successful prophet. So, um, He's a companion to Zechariah, as we've already mentioned. You can look at Ezra 5.1 and 6.14 uh, to further see that. He wrote from and to uh, Jerusalem. So he's there in the city itself, uh, speaking, writing, preaching uh, to the people there. 
Of all the books in the Old Testament, this one enjoys the unusual status of being uncontested by critics. Now, you know, at this point, pretty much every book, you know, I don't necessarily want to use the labels, but there's a conservative and a liberal view on the book, right? Or a critical view is what the, the scholarly literature will probably tell you. Um, this book actually doesn't have much of a divide. Um, it's acknowledged to be the work of the prophet himself, and the date it assigns to each message is accepted as reliable. So there's not much debate on this book. His ministry spans just about four months, from the first day of the sixth month in 1-1 to the 24th day of the ninth month in 2-20. So approximately August 29th to December 18th, 520 B.C. So that's kind of cool in a sense. That there's uh, activities written about in the Bible that you could say, like in our, in our year terminology, you know, December uh, 18th, 520 B.C., that, that finished out, you know. He's the first writing prophet to address those returning from exile. He may have written the book between 520 and 515. That's the completion of the temple ended there, 515. He began prophesying in the eighth month of Nathaniel. So, Zechariah did. All right, so the date. <coughs> As we've mentioned, it's pretty precisely dated with dates of each sermon, four of them, given to the exact date. The accuracy with which he records these dates suggests that he might have kept a journal. The beginning of Darius's reign is well established at 522 B.C., and each of the four messages took place in the second year, so that puts it at 520. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And so... We have in verse 1, okay, the superscription that tells us uh, who, what, when, where kind of thing. And there we have the, the beginning. So this is also a, a good example of how you can corroborate uh, secular and biblical history together. So uh, secular history helps us with Darius's uh, time period and whatnot, and then this plugs right into that. So the messages themselves... Now, you could go back to the earlier screen with uh, Stitcher's information, and uh, we only looked at the fact that Haggai and Zechariah had prophesied during the same year, and I said we don't care right now about the, the day and the month, um, but that was on that screen, and it comes you know right out of the, the verses in the, in the passage. But the first message is delivered on the 1st of Eliel, that's August to September, in the second year of Darius, 520 B.C., the second is on the 21st of Tishri, the same year. The third and the fourth were both given on the 24th day of Kislev in the same year. So all four sermons were delivered within three months of each other. So the time period given usually is, is four months for him. So um, Haggai takes about four months. So that's a pretty short time period. Um, you look at other, other prophets, you know, that preached. Jeremiah preached 40 years. Four months, 40, 40 years. Uh, big difference. The historical context... Haggai and Zechariah uh, follow on the heels of the exilic prophets Ezekiel and Daniel. So they've been sent into exile, okay, 70 years in Babylon. So Ezekiel and Daniel are here, and then Haggai and Zechariah are going to come right on the heels of them. Israel had failed to obey God, and God warned of coming destruction. Um, Deuteronomy 28 to 30 lists out all sorts of curses that would fall on God's people if they broke the covenant. And so 
And this is fulfilled uh, via Assyria and Babylon. And so the exilic prophets, Daniel and Ezekiel, and now Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are the post-exilic prophets. So when you're thinking about the prophets and you know how to kind of remember them, uh, one of the ways that would be helpful for you is just to think uh, pre-exile, exile, and post-exile. So the exile prophets are just uh, Daniel and Ezekiel. And then you've got these post-exile prophets, and so that's, that's going to leave everybody else to be pre-exile. Um, the 70 years captivity, anybody remember uh, why they get 70 years of captivity? Uh, well, Jeremiah talks specifically about it. And then uh, I believe uh, Daniel references Jeremiah while he's in exile, right? He brings up uh, Jeremiah. So, but anybody remember why? Why 70 years? Because of the Sabbath. It's because for 490 years they had failed to observe a Sabbath in the land. And so God kicked them out, basically, and gave the land 70, sab 70 years of Sabbaths all in a row because they had failed to give it to them when they should have. So, uh, very interesting. I don't want to go into a tangent, but um, you know that does demonstrate an aspect not only of, of God and his faithfulness to his covenant and how important it is, but um, he actually cares about the land. You know, So, and think about Jonah. He actually cares about the cattle, right? So, th there's some aspect here that, you know, as Christians in the 21st century, we really should be, uh, you know, cognizant of. The temple construction <coughs> began, but was halted, Ezra 3, 8 through 13, and it was halted for about 14 to 17 years. People began to pursue selfish interests, so God began to discipline again. He sent Haggai and Zechariah to get the people focused again and to work. Through the leading of God, the ministry of the prophets, uh, the decree and the funding of Darius I, and the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, the rebuilding of the temple was resumed and completed in 516, exactly 70 years after it was destroyed. Now, when we talked about the 70 years in the temple before, uh, we did mention there's there's two ways of calculating the, the 70 years. Um, either from the first deportation to the first return, so you base it on people, when the people left to the, when the people returned, okay, or some um, count it and said, from the destruction of the temple to the rebuilding of the temple when it was finished being rebuilt. So either, it's 70 years either way. But, um, so I don't know if that's like a, a double fulfillment or, you know, I'm, I'm going to doubly make sure you, you realize it was 70, you know, whatever. The point is 70 years. So, anyways, so that that is what's going on um, here. So, there is a, uh, a repeated crop failure is a warning that political opposition was no excuse to not finish the temple building. Um, but when, Ezra 5 says, but when the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel who was over them, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and uh, Jeshua, son of Josedach, began to rebuild God's house in Jerusalem. And the prophet of God were with them, uh, helping them. And in Ezra 6, 14 and 15, it says, So the Jewish elders continued successfully with the building under the prophesying of Haggai, 
the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo. And they finished the building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes of Persia. The house was completed on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So, um, Marcus Dodd says, No prophet ever appeared at a more critical juncture in the history of a people, and it may be added, no prophet was more successful. All right? So, what we find here is we have a, a close relationship now between uh, these, these uh, restoration, post-exile uh, peoples. So, Ezra and Nehemiah, um, also Esther's in there, because Esther's in the middle of Ezra and Nehemiah, right? So, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and then Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So, these six books are all well-connected, um, which is what contemporaries are about. So, contemporaries, Ezekiel and Daniel have probably died by this point. Tom Constable indicates, and so Zerubbabel and Zechariah are contemporaries. Remember, Zerubbabel came back um, in the, the first grouping or so. The historical books of Ezra deal with the same time periods and the same group of people. These were difficult and discouraging times for many of them. Um, they, they left Persia, okay, or the Babylonian era, area, which was now consumed by and ruled by Persia, all right? And it was a place that was probably a place of relative peace, some prosperity, etc. And they come back to Jerusalem, and what do they come back to? Disrepair. The remnants of destruction after sitting for 70 years. I mean, it's got to be overrun. Animals running all over. There's no walls, etc. Uh, the neighbors don't really want them there. The other people, the uh, Edomites are going to become a, a bother to them again. Um, probably not real happy times, okay? So they got discouraged. And what do people sometimes do when they get discouraged? They give up. So they give it up. They stop. They stop building. And so God had to send in somebody to poke them in the side. Say, get back up. Get about this. So the message and the preaching. Um, the first message was to Zerubbabel. Okay? Uh, probably born in Babylon. And Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. So we see this in the first chapter. Uh, people get back to work. All right? It was difficult, and they had stopped. The second message, chapter 2, one, well, chapter 2, was to Zerubbabel uh, and Joshua and the remnant. People get back to work. Same message. So they got back to work, and then they stopped again. The third message was to the priest, chapter 2, verse 11. The fourth message was to Zerubbabel, chapter 2, 21, delivered the same day as message number three. And it was, people, get back to work. Finish the temple. So it's a pretty simplistic message here, right? People, get back to work. Finish the temple. What's the theological context? Okay. The priority of God's house. You know, put God's house first. You know, if you're preaching this, you know, God's house first. The, the priority of his house. God's house is in ruins while the people's house is running smooth. So that, that, that doesn't fly with God. Uh, no temple? Well, why is that a big deal? The people are coming back. They've had no temple for 70 years. Who cares now? Well, what was the temple symbolic of? Yeah, relationship in the presence of God. So God 
is trying to reignite this, all right? The temple was also a centralized place that was supposed to display the glory of God and to be a light to the nations through that process. So exile was due to covenant unfaithfulness, so they needed to demonstrate a renewed heart by putting God first. In the ancient Near East, the glory of a nation's temple reflected the glory of the people of God. So to finish the temple was a means of glorifying God. And so by not doing so, they are not lifting up God. They're not glorifying God. They're, they're not praising God. And uh, it's a matter of priorities. They were building their houses, but not God's. Because after all, do they really want to live amidst the rubble? No. So for 15 years, they've been fixing their houses up, right? But they're not taking care of God. So what, what is the theme or themes in the book? Well, the temple, all right? God's dwelling place on earth, uh, a center of worship, the symbol of Yahweh's greatness. Um, it was more important than kings and priests and palaces. Remember in uh, the book of Kings, Solomon builds the temple. And then, uh, you know, one of Solomon's problems was his divided heart. He spent twice as much on his house as he did on the temple also. But um, the, the center of the episodes of, of Kings, uh, let's see, 1 Kings chapters, uh, I think, 3 through 11. The centerpiece of that is when the temple is finished, and there's an entire chapter detailing Solomon's prayer to God and then the, the abundance of sacrifices that are offered up to God. And then right after that, you get to chapter 11, and it tells you how the kingdom is going to be wiped away from Solomon and how bad he was. So, it also has the idea of hope, the blessing to come. Chapter 2, verse 6 uh, talks about this. The Lord of hosts says, Once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of the nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory. And so, there's a future hope. So they're, they're there, and they're, they're discouraged. Everything is in disrepair. And, like, you know, they're probably thinking, why did we leave Babylon Persia? Why, why did we come back here? This is such a mess. We had it so good back there. And even when they finished building the temple, they're like, uh, the young people wouldn't have known any different. But the, the grandparents, maybe, or someone when they, when they were a kid, maybe, when they were taken off into exile and they saw Solomon's temple, they're like, what's this? This ain't no temple, you know? It's like someone that's been in a megachurch their whole life, you know? And then they, they go to, like, a, a house church, you know? It's like, what's this? This ain't church, you know? Um, so their whole perspective, Christ is a theme also, the desire of the nations. Um, so we talked about a little more. Zechariah is going to talk even more about the, the future messianic aspects. And then the success of Haggai's preaching. Um, Malhouse has uh, put it this way. The choices are doing the work of God or doing what we want to do. And uh, thus says the Lord of hosts occurs in numerous places all through there. And consider your ways occurs um, four different times in the book. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Now I think in um, depending on your translation, you won't all see, you won't see this all the time. This is one of the, the benefits, by the way. There's a couple ways of skinning the cat, right? So uh, translations are not 100% consistent, and, and they do this for a reason. 
um, with words and, and, um, and phrases. If they did, you would more easily be able to see the repetition. But it doesn't always mean the exact same thing, so they nuance it a little bit differently. So you have choices. You, you can do Greek and Hebrew word studies, and, and sometimes it's not just a word, though. Sometimes it's a phrase. Um, or you can read a good commentary that will point it out to you. Uh, and then, so uh, um, I do both, obviously. Uh, a lot of times I do get it out of a commentary. So then I go back and I check in my text. And so you look at those references that are on the screen. And in, um, so the consider your ways one. So in 2.15, Haggai 2.15, the Holman says, now reflect back from this day. It doesn't say consider your ways. Okay? So now, actually, I didn't double check this before I came. Um, and if I, you know, I probably should have. But I don't know what yours says. ESV, NIV, what you got? What you got? What's it say? Consider, okay. So if you look at all four, ESV might be consistent on what they did with that. They might have. I, I don't know if I didn't check it. So you would pick that up if you're just reading it in English. But um, it's obscured here. I would miss one of the four because it says reflect back. Um, all the other three, it says think carefully in Holman. Think carefully, think carefully, and consider carefully. Here it says reflect back. So <clears throat> four different times. This is a short book, right? Only Obadiah is shorter. It's two chapters. So four times in two chapters, actually twice in each chapter, consider your ways carefully, okay? Uh, reflect on. Okay, reflect does mean to consider, right? But so you got four times that it's saying this. Um, give careful thought to your ways. So that is something that is important in, in the passage as well. Um, is it time for yourself to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Therefore, Kind of like, um, this isn't exactly the same, but I went with a pastor friend of mine to someone's house the other day on, in Pine Hills that he'd gotten a few phone calls from. And uh, she's gotten a notice from the, the city or the county and uh, needs to do some repairs or they might start fining her, et cetera, et cetera. So, I don't, we almost didn't find the house. It was right in the corner, but it's literally like under trees. So we pulled in, and you can immediately see. It's like it's been no maintenance done for years. Um, the the roof has fallen apart. The, the, the windows around the windows. So we, you know, we went in. Um, this whole section of the ceiling missing. Buckets for rain. You know, um, I've never seen much cobwebs in my life. Like literally, I told I told my son. I said, um, "There's part of me that really doesn't think she lives here." Somehow she found out we were coming, and she came over and sat inside before we arrived. Because literally, like I don't know, like go you heard of ghost towns? Like it looked like nobody lived there. Everything was covered in cobwebs and dust. And obviously, if you live there and touch stuff, like some of that wouldn't be there because you'd be touching it. Anyways. Uh, she said she had running water, but nothing had run in her kitchen sink or her bathroom sink in a very long time because it was just plastered with cobwebs and dust. But right next door, there's a nice little three-piece, you know, Pine Hills block home. The other side, same thing. You know, so um, I don't even know if they noticed they lived there. And so that's kind of 
in a sense, what's going on. Like, right here, all your houses are nice, your houses are all nice, and then, what's this? But in the biblical text, that was God's house, you know, that was the temple. And so, this lady's house, like, that's what it is. And God's saying, well, you fixed up all yours, like, what's up with mine? And get your heart right, get your priorities right. In the New Testament, Luke 21, 26, and Hebrews 12, 26, and 7, uh, refer to the, the shaking of the earth idea that is mentioned in Haggai 2, 6, and 2, 21. So that is a, a primary reference in the New Testament. <clears throat> as far as the text of the book goes, there's only a few textual concerns. And I've listed them there for you. We're not going to spend any, any time on those. So... A, a couple of different uh, thoughts on the on the structure here. Center Point Bible Institute has organized it like this for us. Here's the first four messages, and you can see on the bottom they're all dated. Remember, messages three and four come on the same day. Okay, and so August 29th, 520 BC. That's that's so weird, right? When you're reading, you're like, oh, this biblical thing occurred on, and you put a, a, a modern time and date stamp on it. August 29th, 520 BC. October 16th, 520, and December 18th, 520 BC. So, expectation to complete the temple, expectation of a glorious temple, the holy people, and um, a new leader. The shepherd theme is going to be um, a little bit prominent today in our, our, uh, our books as well. Um, this here The idea of chiasms are are pretty prevalent. Okay, by now we've probably noticed that. So, in in the first portion of of, of the book here, there's a bit of a chiastic structure going on. This is from Corrupts.com. Uh, it starts out in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month on the first day of the month. All right, now. put that as a, as a new um, a new unit um, but he argues if you look here at 1, 1 to 2 and you've got the four characters Haggai, Zerubbabel, Joshua and these people and then down here again in 1, 12 to 14 Haggai, Zerubbabel, Joshua and all the remnant or the people <coughs> the phrase the people don't work the time had not yet come the phrase the people work so you've got these parallel thoughts going on and here you have your paneled houses lying in ruins, and my house lying in ruins, these two zones, um, these two zones are the your houses, okay, and then these parts here both deal with um, what has been going on, and so consider how you've been faring, you've sowed much, but you've harvested little, and consider how you've been faring, fivefold verbal instruction to rebuild, fivefold education of futility, and so this parallel aspect, he says, of, of what is um, going on here. The return, as I mentioned, was, was not what they expected it to be. Um, they return, and they're, they're surrounded by the oppressive rule of the, the Medes and the Persians. Um, and that, that picture up there is <coughs> the, the, the winged figure up there in the middle, at the top. That's probably the Persian god, um, Ahura Mazda. 
Ahura Mazda was worshipped as the creator god of the Persians. Um, in contrast to Ahura Mazda and his creation stood Agya uh, Mainu in the uncreation. We talked about this a little bit in our my other class a week or two ago. This dualistic orientation precipitated a conflict between what they referred to as the Artha and the Druze, the truth and lie. All things lie on one side of this dualistic construct. Light, water, fertile land, health, etc. stood on the side of good. Darkness, winter, drought, sickness, death stood on the other side. So interpreted in the light of the Persian nationalism, the Artha was embodied in the comprehensive rule of, of the monarchs, whereas the Druze was represented in the various would-be usurpers of the Persian world order. So the creation and order of the Persian rule, the Druze, stood over against the chaos and disorder of these rogue, rebellious kings. So Persia wanted to send a very clear message to any potential re rebels. Um, Ahura Mazda, below the, the, the god figure, standing tallest above the rest is Darius, the enforcer of the Artha. To his left is his assistant. To the right are nine conquered kings with one on the ground under his feet. Darius is clearly presenting himself as an enforcer of righteousness and order, the king of kings, above all. Um, yet, Haggai proclaims the reversal of this pagan empire. Um, though the present time is the time of Darius the king, and Israel finds herself surrounded and bracketed on all sides by his tyrannical rule, Haggai is signaling a day when Darius's kingdom will be brought to an end. The chiastic reversal of his calendar in 1-1 and 115 is proleptic of the conclusion of his prophecy. Because in Haggai 2, we no longer see Darius bracketing Israel's eschatological future, but rather Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. So the double mention of Zerubbabel at the beginning and ending of the final prophetic unit stands in stark contrast to the dominating presence of Darius in chapter 1. So what he's saying is that Haggai has so structured this prophetic writing that Israel is sandwiched between Persian Darius, in the beginning, chapter 1, if you will, and then sandwiched between God's own people, uh, Zerubbabel, and what God is going to do in the future in the next um, next portion. So, how different Israel looks after the word of the Lord is proclaimed in her midst. Though in Haggai 1-2, the people are excusing their disobedient laziness, in 1-14, that disobedience is graciously reversed, says they came and they worked on the house of the Lord their God. Through the power of the prophetic message, Haggai stirs up the people, the priests, and the governor to fulfill the covenantal commission they had received from the Lord to rebuild the temple. And so this, this aspect that flows through um, the book, the glory of God in the house of God, it's Israel's past glory, and, and God wants that to be um, put back in place. And so there's an idea of eschatological reversal going on, um, and we've talked about that with the prophets before as well. So that is, um, that's the argument from there. I forget, I don't think I put it in the, uh, in the paperwork. You would have to go, the website is probably listed on the PowerPoint slide in the notes section. I forget the uh, guy's name, but you could go um, look that up if you so care. So, just a little more simpler, back to the schnitzers. Um, words of challenge, words of encouragement, all right? Rebuild the house, Yahweh stirs the hearts, and they respond, and then his presence will be with the people, 
the uh, the people's priests rule, and then Yahweh's going to overthrow the other kingdoms, which is why he was just alluding to this eschatological re uh, reversal that is going to take place. So the first message, all right, is misplaced priorities. So this starts out right in the beginning of the book. They're waiting on God. They already knew what to do. You know, I, I think a lot of times um, Christians do the same thing. And I, and I even I have to struggle with this one sometimes. There's an awful lot of people that say they're waiting on God. Now, there is a, there is a time and a place to wait on God. But what are you waiting on God for? Like, I mean, God's pretty much already told us. It's not pretty much. God's already told us what to do, how to live our lives. Um, I think sometimes we have made this will of God thing into some uh, mystical thing where in reality he's told us what to do. Like, um, you know, love God and love people. And uh, use the skills he's given you, whatever they are, to do that. So um, you're a plumber? Well, be the, the best plumber there is, man. And do it for the glory of God. I mean, who, who wants refuse all in their house? I want a good plumbing system, right? <laughs> so... Be a good plumber, because I need a good plumber. You know? Be a good mechanic. Um, help a brother out. Or sister. Motivated for their self, but not for God. So th They were about their own self-interest. I think sometimes we kid ourselves, and really we're just uh, too scared. That's a big one. Um, lazy. To do what God's calling us to do. You know? I'm getting ready to embark on a new endeavor, and uh, yeah, there's risk involved. You know, there's there's money risk involved. There's, um, you know, and obviously you can't just do anything without, you know, some wisdom and research behind it either necessarily, and just stamp. Oh, God just blessed me. I should be able to do that too. Oh, just bless me, bless me. Well, that doesn't necessarily work either. Anyway. So, what's the duty? So, misplaced priority. What's the duty? Verse 8. Rebuild the temple. Okay? This is going to be a repeat. Priority to God's commands, the presence of God will come. Okay? God wants to come, and he wants to live here. All right? <coughs> That's what he wants. Um, Go up into the hills, he says in verse 8. Bring down the lumber and build the house. Then I will be pleased with it and be glorified. Message number two. Incorrect perspective. They were comparing it to Solomon's in, in 2 3. So he says, Who's left among you who saw the house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem like nothing to you? Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. So it looks like nothing. Stop comparing it. We have the same problem, do we not? We compare ourselves to each other. What did Paul write to his young men in the faith? Those who compare themselves amongst themselves and with each other are not wise. Right? But we do it anyways, don't we? Every pastor does it. You know, going to a church is this, going to church is this, this ministry to this, da 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 da, right? Um, what's the duty? Be strong and work. Do not compare your assignment with another generation's assignment. So in Solomon's day, they had this grandiose temple. Well, now the goal is not to remake Solomon's, it's just remake my house. You know, simple but nice. Instead of massively covered in gold, right? Her Herod will take care of that one later, right? Uh, so 
This is actually interesting. You know, obviously God knows everything. And so uh, he has his people, you know, invest, I don't know, this little bit, right? And then he's going to have the pagan Herod invest all this into and make this grand to this. <clears throat> Do not compare your assignment and God's presence again in, in chapter 2 and verse number 4. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, king of priests. Be strong, and all the people of the land. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts is a phrase that's going to keep referring, or recurring in our book today also. Um, that's message two. Message number three. Unrealistic expectations. Um, internal, not external, is the basis for God's blessing. The duty is to learn from the priest who would teach them the Torah. Obedience would lead to blessing, and spiritual lives would be renewed. And on the very same day, there was the fourth message. And the fourth message was that they have unnecessary fears. A small community, but God will judge the Gentiles, believe God's promises. Your duty is to have patience. Reversal may not occur in your lifetime. It may take a while for the reversal to take place. that is basically the summation, a quick overview of what takes place in the book of Haggai, these short little few chapters. At the end of the, the book, we'll just close with verses 20 and following. It says, The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day. So this is that fourth message again. I speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. So you don't need to worry about Persia, etc. I'm going to take them out. I will overturn chariots and their riders. Chariots, I mean, that's the tank of the day, right? So that's the military might. Horses and their riders will fall, each by his brother's sword. On that day, the declaration of the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, and make you my signet ring. For I have chosen you. This is the declaration of the Lord. So he's taking them into you know, his side and saying, listen, I've chosen you specifically for this. I'm here. I've got this. This is what's going to happen. And I'm going to take out the enemies. So... Uh, that's our, a quick summation of the book of Haggai. Hey, yeah.